think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. We're into February, and I am pleased to announce that January 2021 was the busiest month ever for the American Birding Podcast. That may not matter to you, but it's gratifying for me. And I just want to thank all of you for your ratings, for your reviews, and especially your word of mouth endorsements, because I really do think that is the best sort of publicity a podcast can get. So thank you for that. It was also a dramatic month in snowy owl news following the discovery of one in Central Park, New York City, for the first time in well over 100 years. Of course, snowy owls are not uncommon on the beaches around New York and onto Long Island. And as you might expect, the drama that surrounds owls in general, and especially snowy owls in particular, was cranked to 11 this week. Thanks for nothing, Harry Potter. I have some thoughts about that. I'll start off by saying that I am not fully involved in the New York City birding community, which, as you might imagine from a birding community in the ABA area's largest city is broad. It is varied. Uh, I look from afar at some of the dust-ups and, and, you know, some of those things are inherent in any large group of people with differing priorities. Anytime you get lots of people involved, you get uh, the potential for something like this. It is the nature of human beings, unfortunately. In any case, the discovery of a snowy owl, a bird that lots of people would want to see in the middle of one of the most highly trafficked green spaces in the country, had the potential to cause some conflict. And I will admit right off the bat that my first thought upon hearing of this bird was, oh no, nothing good can come of this. But in the clear light of day, the clear light of several days out. I am uh, a little frustrated with myself for feeling that way because, as it turned out, uh, the situation was managed about as well as can be expected under quite unique circumstances. The bird put down on the closest thing to a tundra it could find in the middle of Manhattan, which was the outfield of a baseball field. Uh, so there was already a fence around it, so it was fairly easy to establish a perimeter. And Central Park Rangers, who I understand are volunteers, you can correct me if I'm wrong about that, um, did just that. They created that perimeter. They made sure that people couldn't get close to what was almost certainly a totally bewildered owl. And uh, I should have realized this snowy owl, perhaps unique among all birds, is a sort of owl that you can view from a distance. This isn't a sawwet owl or a boreal owl tucked into a small pine tree. It is an open country bird that you can see and frequently do see at a pretty far distance. Uh, it allowed folks to spread out, to view the bird in a manner that was as safe as can be for the owl and for the people. We are still in a pandemic, obviously. Uh, and as it turns out, it wasn't the people that drove the bird away. 
after a couple days. It was probably the constant barrage from local crows and Cooper's hawks uh, and red tails. As you know, New York, it's a tough city. And I bring this up because there was a lot of chatter about whether or not it's a good idea to publicize owl locations generally. And I hear that argument a lot. And um, I don't want to I don't want to minimize it. It is an important argument, uh, even one that Ebert has taken a somewhat hard line on. We have sort of we wink at it a little bit in the ABA Code of Birding Ethics. But in the case of this bird in particular, it is it is hard to suppress a big white bird in the middle of an open space. Plus, I think it's important to recognize the potential for these sorts of opportunities to be spark experiences for a lot of people. Snowy owl is unique in that it is sort of a bird that resonates with non-birders as much as birders. So maybe thanks for something, Harry Potter? Nah, let's not go that far. I think there's room for nuance, and I don't want to completely gatekeep these experiences, making them only available to the few who are in the in crowd. I think it is one of the wonderful things about this modern birding culture that is superior to the birding culture that I came up in, that this stuff is largely public and largely available to just about anyone who is looking for it. I think ultimately what these sort of situations make explicit is the need for more accessible green spaces so that these are not once in a century sort of moments where everyone can have access to places where meaningful interactions of wildlife are possible. If this pandemic has turned a bunch of new people into birders or nature watchers and longtime birders are concerned about crowding at our favorite spaces, and I have seen that argument made, well, we just need more of those spaces, right? More parks, more access, more opportunities. That's the goal, even though it's a much larger poll, perhaps, than the immediate drama of a snowy owl. But kudos to New York birders and park authorities on this one. It took what could have been a garbage fire and hopefully turned it into a spark of interest for many. On the show this week, another Pileated Woodpecker story, this one from Jordan Leahy of Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a sort of spark bird story that I think will resonate with all of us. Thank you for that, Jordan. But first, let's talk about the bird that is unlikely to make a lot of spark bird lists, the humble brown-headed cowbird. Sarah Winecki of the University of Illinois' Cowbird Lab is here to make the case for why this blackbird deserves a little more respect, even if that respect is sort of born out of fear. Fair warning, there's a pet bird chirping in the background. Who would have thought that a bird researcher has a pet bird, right? Anyway, I hope it doesn't bother you. Just imagine that it is also weighing in on cowbirds. But first, some rare bird news. This is your rare bird focus for the last part of January 2021. I mentioned last week that it could be a good time for birders in the Northeast to keep an eye on those robin flocks looking for European thrushes, and I turned out to be prescient which was bound to happen eventually. Two red wings, the nomadic European thrush, not the blackbird, were reported in Maine this week, the first earlier in January at a private residence in Washington County, and the second, a much more accommodating bird in Portland. These represent the first and second records of this species for that state. You can add them to the one from New Brunswick I talked about last week, and now three red wings have been documented from Newfoundland. Interestingly enough, that same park hosting the Portland, Maine Red Wing is currently hosting also is also currently hosting a black-headed grosbeak and a dickcissel, which is a really bizarre trio of birds. Cornell's Birdcast noted early in January that we were in a negative phase for the North Atlantic Oscillation with a blocking high-pressure system, which what this means for the laybirder uh, means strong easterly winds from Europe, which typically bring conditions associated 
with European vagrants, which is what we're seeing. Thrushes are strong flying birds and good candidates, but also be on the lookout for early migrants like common shell duck, northern lapwing, and other ducks and early migrating shorebirds. Other interesting birds to note include a common crane in Jasper County, Indiana, and a three-crane flock with sandhills and whooping cranes. Uh, That is the state's second record, so far as I can tell. Indiana also had its third record of burrowing owl this week in Vigo County. Oregon's fourth Ross's goal south of Newport, always notable to have that species in the lower 48, was also seen this week. And those are the rarity highlights for the week. As always, for more complete look, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Pity the poor cowbird. All it does is try to do its thing, which admittedly includes brood parasitism. And in doing so, has seen itself on it's probably an unofficial list of underappreciated birds of North America. We're going to try and change that today. My guest is Sarah Winicki. They are an ecology graduate student, University of Illinois' uh, Mark Halber Lab, the Cowbird Lab. They want to rehabilitate the image of the humble cowbird. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. When you started working with cowbirds, did you have a certain opinion of them? And has it changed over the years that you have done this work? I can't say that I had strong opinions either way about cowbirds. Um, my time as a kid in the Ohio Young Birders Club kind of instilled in me the value of all native species. Sure. So I was lucky in that. Um, but it certainly changed from um, kind of not having an opinion to now I absolutely love cowbirds. I think they're neat to study as a scientist, as someone interested in behavior. I think their calls are really awesome. I think the babies are so ugly cute. Um, <laughs> so, so what makes the cowbird such an interesting bird to study besides the, the you know, interesting behaviors? Well, I mean, the interesting behaviors are probably a big part of it. But like, there's a, is, it, is it easy to study? Is it a, a good study species? I, would th- I think so. Um, yes. I'm biased, of course. Sure. <laughs> There's a lot of neat things about brood parasitism. As you mentioned, cowbirds are brood parasites. They lay their eggs in other birds' nests, force those birds to raise their babies. So they open up a lot of really interesting research opportunities, really fascinating questions. You know, how do female birds find nests? How do these host species evolve to recognize and deal with cowbirds? Um, How do cowbirds overcome the host species' defenses? There's a lot of really interesting questions and there's a lot of cowbirds around. Yeah. So they parasitize like over 100 species. Some folks think over 200 species. So you can find them across a lot of North America um, and other species in Central and South America. I think they're a really great opportunity to ask some of these kind of cool, complicated questions. So when you go out and, and look for cowbirds, do the actual field work that you're doing, what does that look like? What is your process? So right now I'm actually working with robins more than cowbirds. Oh, okay. But Talk about um, robins a little bit. <laughs> Another kind of underappreciated, very common. Yeah, bird. right? Um, but in the past, when I've worked with cowbirds, I would go out and I'd look for nests. So I'm primarily focused on baby cowbirds. I study how they grow. I study how mm-hmm. they influence the growth, the growth rather, of um, the host nestlings. So I'd go out every day. I'd trudge through the prairies of Kansas I would, um, working with Dr. Alice Boyle at Kansas State University, I would try to flush birds off their nests, so scare them off their nests, which is horrible, you know, um, as someone who loves birds. 
But once I find the nest um, from, you know, ejecting these parents, I would look to see if there's cowbird eggs and cowbird babies in the nest, these nestlings, and then I'd measure them. So I, you know, take out some little calipers, these little uh, precise measuring devices and measure things like the cowbird legs and their beaks and come back day after day and see how they're growing before Mm -hmm. they fledge or leave the nest. Um, What kind of species would you find cowbirds in? I was focused on three main host species, the grasshopper sparrow, the eastern meadowlark, and the dixisle, because they are the most common grassland birds at our site. But as I mentioned, cowbirds parasitize hundreds of bird species. Um, So there's a lot of really cool cowbird research happening with a variety of North American species. Yeah, grasshopper sparrow seems like such a weird, I, I don't know, like, it's such a tiny little bird. And cowbirds are, you know, relatively speaking, huge. And yet they don't recognize that they are feeding, you know, cowbird versus a, a tiny, tiny little grasshopper sparrow baby. It's so, so bizarre to me. Yeah, there's a potential that the grasshopper sparrows can actually tell that it's a cowbird in the nest, mm-hmm. but cowbirds force them to continue raising the, those baby cowbirds <laughs> anyway. So there's something called the mafia hypothesis, right? Um, which posits that cowbird females actually come back in and check on their eggs and babies. And if the host parents, the grasshopper sparrows in this case, aren't taking good care of those cowbirds, the female cowbirds will retaliate by hurting the grasshopper sparrow babies, <laughs> which is brutal. Um, yeah, we're trying to rehabilitate their image here and they're not, they're not doing us any favors. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah. So it could be the case that the grasshopper sparrows are totally like, this is a cowbird. This is huge. This isn't my baby. But if I don't feed it, there are consequences. So I'm going to feed it anyway. Unfortunately, there are a lot of grasshopper sparrows. How frequently did you find cowbirds nestlings eggs in, in bird nests? It depends on the host species. Mm-hmm. So the meadowlarks aren't parasitized as frequently. I unfortunately can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I know mm-hmm. something like the average for the site for grasshopper sparrows was almost exactly 50%. So we'd find at mm-hmm. least one cowbird egg, often more than one in these nests. Um, the dick thistles get hammered by cowbirds. So huh. we see cowbird eggs in something like 80 to 90% of the nests, depending on the year. I found a nest that had eight cowbird eggs in a single dixisle nest. What? Um, which was spectacular. Do they do a poor job hiding their nests? or? Yeah, so the other two species, the meadowlarks and the grasshopper sparrows, nest on the ground in the grass with like a little dome mm-hmm. over the top of their nest. And the dixisles are an open cup nest, kind of like a robin nest that's right. often off the ground with bright blue eggs. Um, so I think they're just pretty miserable at hiding their, their nests from those cowbirds. Huh. That's so strange. Do they do they produce more young than other those other birds? Do they is there sort of a way for them to recoup their losses, potential losses to brown-headed cowbirds, or is it just yeah, good luck? <laughs> There's some evidence that they preferentially feed their own babies rather than the cowbirds. Mm-hmm. So they're still feeding the cowbirds. Cowbirds are still being successfully raised by these dick thistles, but it could be that they're making sure they're also feeding their own babies a little bit more. Yeah. In huh. a lot of cases, though, so cowbirds will remove some host eggs. Sometimes when they come to the nest, they're looking to lay their own cowbird eggs. That obviously isn't the case in some of our dixisle nests because there's a full four dixisle eggs in addition to uh-huh. these cowbird eggs. So they may not be losing as much from the cowbird parasitism as we like to think they are. 
Huh. And our growth measurements suggest that the cowbirds aren't impacting the way these hosts are growing at all. Huh. So the parents are potentially compensating by working extra hard to make sure that their babies are fine, even when the cowbirds are present, um, at the cost potentially of their future reproduction. So maybe they won't be as good parents in the future because they're burning themselves <laughs> out yeah, trying to care for these cowbirds. Hmm. So what are some of the other more interesting things that you've learned about cowbirds? Maybe not work that necessarily you have done yourself, but your your lab has done or just stuff that you've come across. I think there's a lot of really sweet things about cowbirds that we um, don't necessarily think of because, uh, as you say, we have some preconceptions about mm-hmm. cowbirds. but. Um, cowbird babies are really voracious. They're a great system in which to study begging behavior, mm-hmm. you know, how these babies are soliciting food. They beg all the time. It's kind of sweet when you're measuring them. <laughs> They're begging for food from you. And it's like, I'm not able to feed you, darling. <laughs> um, you can find them, as I mentioned, in hundreds of different species nests. How do they time that breeding is like a, a pretty major question. How do they... How do they know when yeah. they should lay their egg? How do they find these host species nests? Um, that's pretty cool. They manage to grow up in many, many different home environments. So most species make very similar nests to other individuals in the species. They raise their babies in very similar ways. And you kind of expect that, you know, a baby robin is going to experience similar things. The cowbirds are in hundreds of different nests. So how, how do they grow up in a grasshopper sparrow nest? and a meadowlark nest. There's different amounts of food coming to them. There's different predation risks. There's just different experiences in general. So for me, studying growth, I think that's fascinating. There's also some relatively brutal facts too. I've mentioned this mafia hypothesis where they come in and check on their babies, which I think is really lovely. But they also do things like come to a nest and judge if it's too late to lay their own eggs. And if they decide that it's too late to lay their eggs, they'll sometimes destroy the nest altogether. And we call this farming. Oh, right. To force the parents to build a new nest and then they can come back. Yeah, it kind of lays the seeds of their next brood parasitism attempt. Um, But of course, other birds also kill songbirds and destroy nests. Mm -hmm. Um, Hawks do, you know, crows do. And we like them. (laughs) (laughs) Well enough. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there's a lot of a lot of neat things about cowbirds. There's some cool work going on in the lab. I think it's awesome to study not only the cowbirds themselves, but also their hosts. Mm-hmm. So we know, for instance, that um, yellow warblers have a specific call that means cowbirds. Mm-hmm. So they give this call when they see it. It's like this secret word. Uh, Shelby Lawson, who's a PhD candidate in the lab, has learned that other birds actually eavesdrop on that call. Yeah. So red-winged mm. blackbirds will know that a cowbird is nearby when they hear the yellow warblers saying their cowbird call, huh. which I think is really fascinating. That's similar to, um, I, I don't know if you read Jennifer Ackerman's book, The Bird Way, but uh, she has a chapter about brood parasitism in Australia, where there's like tons of different cuckoo species that are effectively doing the same thing that these cowbirds are doing. And a lot of these birds also have calls that other birds you know, listen in on and know that there is a brood parasite around. I mean, it's sort of like an example of convergent evolution, right? So obviously the birds here are very different than the birds in Australia, but they're doing very similar things in response to this similar behavior. That's just really interesting. Yeah, totally fascinating. I love it so much. Yeah. 
Why do you think people have such a negative opinion of cowbirds? Is it the is it the brood parasite thing? Is it the the mafia behavior, which certainly did not help their <laughs> reputation at all when that's, that that work came out? I remember that. Um, people have this sort of visceral reaction to cowbirds that uh, it's 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 odd. Um, I guess maybe maybe it's not so odd. I do sort of understand it, but you know, it feels like cowbirds are doing some really fascinating things and deserve a little little bit of respect. Yeah. So on one hand, I mean, they do hurt native species. They remove eggs sometimes. Like I said, they destroy nests with mm-hmm. this farming behavior, as you mentioned, this mafia behavior. But as I said before, other birds destroy nests too. Hawks and crows do it. Other predators do it. I think part of it is that we hold parenthood and maternal roles in such high esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, it really matters to us that people are good parents and we kind of let that lead over into our understanding of birds too. We like when birds are good parents. We like watching nest cams. Mm -hmm. And so it bothers us to think that cowbirds are such bad parents. But remember, they're being parents just in different ways. You know, they're finding nests. Female cowbirds can lay up to 50 eggs a year, which is incredible compared to other songbirds. Um, So they're being super parents. They're going back. They're checking in on their babies. They're just doing it in a different way than other bird species. Yeah. Yeah, we had to, you know, reevaluate our uh, perception of parenthood, maybe. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, that, that is a really interesting point that, you know, it's, it's an anthropomorphism thing. Like we're trying to assign our own roles as parents, uh, human roles as parents to birds, when the fact of the matter is that birds do it completely differently. Even birds that we think of as good parents uh, pretty much kick their chicks out of the nest, <laughs> you know, after about yeah. six weeks and they're on their own. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that I, one of the questions that I frequently see about, cowbirds whenever people have discussions about them is the idea of like how do cowbirds learn to be cowbirds when they're raised by different birds um fascinating question and one that's you know frustrated researchers for a while you know birds generally learn characteristics of their species from their parents and Mm -hmm. from other adults and cowbirds aren't raised by parents but in 2001 mark cowber hypothesized with some other co-authors russo and sherman uh, they hypothesize that there's this password that basically unlocks a cowbird's identity, where the cowbird perceives some sort of signal and is like, oh, I'm a cowbird now. <laughs> and they, they hypothesize that it's this chatter call that adult cowbirds give. You know, the young cowbirds end up begging more to this call. They approach the call more readily than other bird calls. And so some researchers have followed up on this in 2017, a group led by Kathleen Lynch identified the area in the brain that kind of unlocks mm. when this call is heard. And then in 2019, a group met, led by Matt Lauder learned that this chatter enhanced song production in young male birds and song familiarity in females. So it appears that there's this, this call, this password, that allows cowbirds to understand that they're a cowbird even though they've been raised by host species and they're hearing those host species calling um, rather than a cowbird when they're really young. That's so strange. You know, I've not seen it myself, but I've heard from other people that have seen this actually happen. Like the moment when this happens, like a cowbird, a young cowbird will come to a bird feeder and with its, you know, parent, parent, quote unquote parent, like a cardinal or a, you know, whatever. And they will be being fed by the cardinal. And then, you know, a flock of cowbirds will fly over and do like that chatter call that I think a lot of birders are very familiar with. And then the bird just goes with them. Like it just happens. Like, oh, 
I, I guess I'm a cowbird and not uh, not <laughs> yeah. whatever. It's so that's such a such an odd thing and, and that's such a cool adaptation, just kind of generally speaking. Yeah, I would love to see that. Yeah. So <laughs> keep watching. If your anyone Peters. wants to, <laughs> yeah, send that my way. That'd be awesome. So in, there's been a ton of like really cool cowbird related research in the last decade. It feels like ornithologists have really turned on to cowbirds as a really cool study species relatively recently. Um, I saw one that was about cowbirds adjusting the sex ratio of their offspring. Like they can sort of tell, you know, based on their environment that they're able to, uh, you know, lay an egg that they're fairly certain is going to be a male or a female cowbird based on the environment around them. I thought that that was really fascinating as well. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. I haven't read that paper recently. Um, but in general, birds end up manipulating sex ratios like that. And it's fascinating huh. because bird sex is determined by chromosomes, just like human sex. Yeah. So it's like, how does the bird body function so that they lay particular chromosome filled babies mm-hmm. in these nests? Um, when, you know, how do, um, uh, for lack of a better word, these, these females know that. The, like the sex of their offspring. And of course, they, they likely don't know it cognitively, but mm-hmm. how do their bodies yeah. understand that is absolutely fascinating. So we're, we're talking obviously a lot about brown-headed cowbird, the, the one that is across the, the North American continent for the most part. Um, do a lot of these things apply to the other species of cowbirds as well, um, including other you know, North American cowbirds like bronzed or shiny? So I focus a lot on the brown-headed, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, working in North America. But there's a lot of fascinating research that does come from these other species. Um, And, you know, they're all related. So we we pull from the literature a lot. So I'd say that in a lot of cases, there's very similar um, questions being asked and results coming in from these other species. But not all of them are what we call generalist brood parasites. Mm -hmm. So... Brown-headed cowbirds are generalists. They lay in hundreds of nests. Other species, like the screaming cowbird, are specialists. They lay in only a single nest, huh. um, only one species nest. So they get kind of locked in this evolutionary arms race with this species, right. the baywing, if I'm correct here in my knowledge of cowbirds. And so they, they mimic how these birds look as cowbird babies. They have these really fascinating relationships with this one species that our generalist cowbirds just don't have a chance to build because they're too busy spreading out around, you know, hundreds of other species. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Why, why would, I, I mean, it doesn't strike me that, you know, screaming cowbird in southern South America, I mean, it certainly encounters as many species as the brown-headed cowbird does here in North America, yet it does not, it's not general. That's that's so strange. Why it would why it would do that? Is the bay wing particularly common? Right here, I'm asking you. You you may <laughs> you may not know, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, is the bay wing like particularly common? Is there uh, is it a habitat thing? Who who knows? I'm sure someone has that answer. Again, it just kind of points to the fact that this cowbird system raises some really really fascinating research mm-hmm. questions. Um, be it these screaming cowbirds, which or is a great name, brown-headed by the way. cowbirds, Just like one of the great <laughs> bird names out there, screaming cowbirds. Absolutely, yeah. We need more birds that scream. Um, yeah, and I know, uh, you know, giant cowbird in Central America. It's sort of famously associated with uh, Montezuma oropendula as well. I mean, a lot of cool evolutionary questions that can be asked uh, about cowbirds for sure. What is the coolest behavior that with the cowbird that you personally have witnessed while you've been studying them? I've witnessed mafia behavior in real life. Wow. 
Yeah, it's cool. Which uh, a lot of the evidence comes from nest cameras mm-hmm. or from the fact that we're seeing some babies disappear from nests that people are monitoring. Um, so again, it's it's cool, even though it's a brutal behavior. Mm-hmm. But I, I watched cowbirds, uh, a male and a female, actually, which isn't really how we think about this mafia behavior happening. We generally think of it as females only. Mm-hmm. So I watched a male and a female drop into a nest and destroy a nest that I was watching, um, which was uh, brutal. I love my my grasshopper sparrow babies. That's sort of sweet, you know, that's it's pair bonding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, in, um, in, in a brutal couple way. activities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I've also... I guess, seen in my data, some really cool patterns. So I just published a paper um, with a a long author list, but I'm going to read them all off anyway. Bill Strasberger, Nick Antonson, Dirk Burhans, Justin Locke, Marm Kilpatrick, and Mark Cowber. And we were looking at the growth of baby cowbirds in the nest of dozens of different hosts. And we found that cowbirds actually synchronize the amount of time they spend both in the egg and as babies in the nest with the amount of time that it takes hosts to develop. So they're, they're not leaving earlier than the host, uh, much earlier than the host, and not leaving much later. They're synchronous, even though these hosts have very different developmental periods. So we're seeing these cool patterns in the data because other people have collected all these really cool cowbird um, data sets. So I think that's fascinating too. Yeah, lots definitely. of raises lots more questions on how these these birds manage to do that. Yeah, what is the mechanism for that? Yeah. Is it hormonal? Is it is it yeah, who knows? It's that's that's so interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I hope people come away from this with a, a better appreciation of cowbirds, of brown-headed cowbirds in particular. Um, I certainly have. They they really are pretty remarkable. Thank you so much, Sarah. You can find them online. I will put the links to their social medias in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was fun. Thank you so much. And yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions over social media or for my website. I love cowbirds. I'll talk about them all day. My name is Jordan Leahy, and I live next to a large, deciduous forest on occupied Monacan Indian territory known as Charlottesville, Virginia. I confess that I've only been birding for about a year, but I can trace my interest and fascination with birds back at least a decade. Back around that time, I lived in Chicago, and one of my favorite things to do was visit the Field Museum, and every time I went, I would always start by wandering the area dedicated to birds. During the pandemic, life has generally been much slower, and it has sort of given space for me to get into birds and birding in a way that was only cursory before. In the pandemic's early weeks, I put a field guide on my window-facing work desk and committed to learning about my avian neighbors. The pileated woodpecker is my favorite bird. It's the bird that flipped the switch from thinking birds are cool to wanting to learn about and ID them. The pileated sharp, piercing call, huge size, and the strength of their flight often makes me gasp. And here I'll say for what it's worth that I grew up a big Star Wars fan and the calls and in-flight shape of pileated woodpeckers evoke the image of X-wing fighters. The other day, I opened the front door to do something monotonous like take out the trash, and almost on cue, a pileated called from the woods to the side of our house. I stopped and turned around and looked back inside. My wife and almost six-year-old daughter had both stopped in their tracks and were staring back at me. They know it's my favorite bird. It's basically a family mascot. I love the pileated woodpecker and the key role they have in maintaining the health of the woods adjacent to my home, taking their size and sharp edges 
and they grip my senses each time I'm fortunate enough to encounter one. Thank you so much, Jordan, for the Palliated Woodpecker story. I'm really enjoying sharing these all with you. Um, If you have one of your own, record it on the Voice Recorder app of your phone. Send it to me at podcast.aba.org, and I can use it in this spot. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do here. You'll get access to our print publications, lots more bird content, discounts to our partners, and our thanks as we build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. Get information about all of our memberships, including e-memberships, at aba.org slash join. I would like to make some shout-outs to... Benjamin, Amy, and Stella Romney of Burley, Idaho, Donald Rice of Barrington, Rhode Island, Karen and Matt Vanzura of Grand Canyon, Arizona, Christian Naventi of Petaluma, California, Donald Kramer of Victoria, British Columbia, Nick Tepper of Stowe, Massachusetts, Tyler Wilson of Corvallis, Oregon, Jeffrey Jones of Indianapolis, Indiana, Patrick Muck of Columbia, Missouri, Robert Hamner and family of Oakland, California, and Susan Parmenter of Sinope, New Hampshire, who writes that between being a wildlife artist and a hobbyist birder, she was pleased to discover the ABA podcast while searching for something interesting to listen to as she paints in the studio. Such a treat to carry her through another New Hampshire winter. Glad we can do that for you. Thank you all who have recently joined the ABA Noted This Podcast as a reason. It really does mean a lot to me that you enjoy what we're doing here, and it means a lot to the American Birding Association as well. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who always thought calliope hummingbirds looked like little TIE fighters, and I, I can't dissuade him of it. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was the first to point out to me that the Mandalorian's razor crest is like the rock pigeon of the Star Wars universe, kind of big around and kind of short-winged. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who point out how odd it is that a Mon Calamari cruiser looks like a diving petrol, because you'd think that a fish like people would shy away from that. Or maybe it's just like a giant flex. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I've always thought that European starlings with their kind of triangular shape look like little imperial star destroyers, which is sort of an appropriate reference for an invasive species best known for its negative influence in the galaxy. But then they make that call like R2-D2, and I'm sympathetic to them again. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.